Welcome to the State of the Theory podcast. I'm Hannah. And I'm in India. And we are your theory doctors. Hello. Welcome back. It's been a long, long time. A very long time. Um, how are you, Hannah? I'm all right. I'm all right. I think we are in quite a privileged position working in... Uh, the university. Yeah, we both get to work from home and we get paid and we haven't lost our jobs through, through lockdown. Um, we should probably explain to our listeners why you might be sounding a bit different than you normally do. Yes. Um, so, yes. so just for, just for context, uh, Hannah's at home. I'm in my house, we are doing this remotely because Scotland is still in lockdown. So we are recording this over Zoom. Um, you probably, you probably um, uh, can hear me better than you can hear Hannah because she's she's in the remote end, as it were. Um, how does it feel to be to be recording away from the way we normally do? Oh, well, we had to have a whole Zoom chat last week before we could start recording to get used to the new format. And how did that chat go? I think it was all right. I mean, the whole point of the podcast was that we were in a room together. Well, in the car together, right? So now that we're not in the car together and we're not in the room together... It's weird. Yeah. 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 It's weird. There's definitely a sort of dislocation. Yeah. Well, maybe, hopefully, the world will get better soon and we can do things face to face again. Yeah. Uh, some Maybe get some garden recording in. Yeah. Some bird sounds. Socially distanced recording. Yeah. <laughs> um so the news hasn't stopped in the months that we've been away. Um Christ. Uh, yeah. Um what are we talking about today, Hannah? Oh, well this is a two-parter, isn't it? Think so, yes. Two-parter. Um this these episodes were inspired by A post that you put out on social media last week, I think, um, that asked your kind of social media friends, your family, acquaintances about um, their experiences in education. And so these two part, this two part series, what is it, duology is what they call it in science fiction, are about education and race. Yeah, so um, we actually have data this time. You know, we 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 are moving into we are moving into the dark side of quantitative research. Uh, 
Netflix. Not really. I'm joking. Um, but anyway, yes. Yeah, so I put out something on Facebook and Twitter, and I, I thought it, it's probably best f- for me to read out the comment, the 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 post and the tweet that I sent out, uh, which said, throughout your education system, primary, secondary, further, higher, how many black teachers, tutors, and professors have you had? I will start zero. Please reply with your corresponding number. Um, and first of all, yeah. can I just ask why did you ask this particular question? Um, that's a very good question. I do, I don't think I asked it as a question. In, in I think it was more of a rhetorical question, in that I wasn't I wasn't necessarily expecting that many responses. Uh, in the end, I got far more responses than I was expecting. But one of the things I was trying to, one of the points I was trying to make in a perhaps a, a, a sort of a ham-handed, ham-fisted, whatever the phrase is, way, is this This coincided with uh, that day. I think it was, was it Blackout Tuesday or Blackout Thursday? I can't quite remember. Where yes. institution after institution in terms of universities including the ones that, that employ us, on, on their various social media uh, profiles uh, put out that black square for Black Lives Matter. Uh, and we're talking about how, you know, University X is committed to to uh, uh, challenging racism and increasing diversity and all of these things. And uh, it occurred to me that this was, as is so often the case, a clear example of institutional gaslighting in that we were being asked to feel good about the forces that continue to oppress us in many ways. And one clear way of demonstrating that was to see how what proportion of staff employed at these institutions are black. In other words, to, to expose the, the disjunction between the fact that University X is claiming to, uh, to tackle racism while at the same time not having any, in many cases, black members of staff. Um, so I, I wanted to to expose that disjunction. And in the end, I got sort of quite a lot of reasonably interesting data, as it were. Uh, before we go through the data, what is what was your answer to that question? Because I don't think you replied. Yeah, so my answer is two. Um, I had a dance teacher in high school. Uh, she was black. And then I had in my first semester of college, my moral philosophy professor was black. And just for, Um, sorry, just for context, where was school and college? School was at a small Catholic girls school in Northern California. Um, uh, a very racially diverse state, but a very, very white suburb of San Francisco. And college was Barnard College in New York City. Um, Barnard has a really active... I mean, there's a lot of activist groups at Barnard and they have a very long-standing... Um, it's called, when I was there, it was called BOSS, the Black Organization of Soul Sisters, um, which was one of the 
most prominent um, black students organizations. And it was a, it was an old organization had been around for a number of decades um, and was very well established. So there was a quite visible black student body at Barnard, but it was very small, very marginalized in terms of curriculum um, and in terms of the kind of massive institution across the street, which was Columbia, um, a, a kind of very marginalized group of women. So while there was a, a kind of, there was historically a space for the members of BOSS and for many women of color at Barnard, they were still extremely marginalized structurally and institutionally. Um, so the, yeah, it's, it's a little bit, it's definitely frustrating, but I think Barnard is an institution. There are aspects of it that aren't quite as equivalent to the, the institutions that we're talking about, which are British research institutions um, based in Scotland. And we'll also talk about some of the English institutions as well. I think Oxford will make an appearance. Um, but my first, my first um, exposure to feminist philosophy came from this black professor. He was the first one to force me to read in detail feminist philosophers. Um, Bell Hooks, I first learned who Bell Hooks was in his class. Um, I first learned who Audre Lorde was in his class. And I wrote an essay on the ethics of care and what is often called third wave feminism and intersectionality. Um, So it, it, I think anecdotally, having a black professor changes what you learn. It it just does. It affects the content of the course. It affects the um, it affects everything. Yeah, um, and just to just to to comment on that in terms of my own uh, my own answer to that question, I said zero. In uh, uh, when I read out my comment, and it is zero, uh, and and for geographical specificity, that is primary and secondary schooling in India in West Bengal, in a in a suburban town in West Bengal. Uh, uh, further education uh, in uh, in sort of Middle England in Lincolnshire and and in Hull, and then university undergraduate university in London, uh, masters in London and. Uh, PhD in in Wales in in Cardiff, um, so uh, so so that's my answer to that to 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 or, or the context behind my answer. Um, across Facebook and Twitter, we got two hundred responses round round number of two hundred, which, as I said, um, was much much more than I I was expecting, and of the two hundred responses, a hundred and nine was zero. So 109 people of the 200 had never been taught by a black person. Um, 40, a further 43 were taught by, had been taught by one black person throughout their education, and a further 12 had had two. Uh, thereafter, thereafter, the the numbers are sort of in single digits, uh, going up to sort of six, seven, eight, nine, uh, and then there is a, um. A sort of a cluster uh, of of eight who said that they had more than ten 
and in in pretty much every case this was in some form or another contextualized geographically so some people said i had many but i went to school in inner city london or i had many and i went to school in baltimore or i had many and i went to school in one person said in nigeria so so the uh it's it's not just that the numbers of black uh educators across school and university is you know way way out of proportion in terms of of the black population but also it's unevenly distributed and there are particular pockets uh geographical pockets where where it seems you are likelier to get uh to to come into contact with a black educator um i guess beyond the 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 quantitative data there are sort of three or four themes that came up that we could we could talk about a, a little bit more and i guess one of the themes that came up is that the you you mentioned the the first black educator you you had experience of was was a dance instructor i think you said right anna mm-hmm. yeah um yeah and, yeah and that's something that's that's really interesting the num- not everyone gave subject details but of the ones who did a large proportion uh specified subjects like religious education or uh uh ICT or guidance counseling in other words sort of quasi academic subjects as it were right so uh it seems that it, that there might be a hierarchy of subjects where black people are allowed in to teach some of the minor subjects or some of the less important subjects and not necessarily allowed to teach you know maths english science and so on Yeah, in the US, well certainly in California, they're called specials, arts, um sports, PE, um they're called the specials classes. Um and they're kind of lumped together in terms of of curriculum and resourcing. Um so in at, at my high school because I went to one of these fancy schools, they were more robustly funded. um so our dance teacher ran courses um she had a whole dance curriculum so you could start dance in first year and i think a lot of people in their freshman year of high school would would do dance at, at the kind of freshman level and you could reasonably get all the way through your four years and you could go into a university not necessarily a conservatory program but you could go into a kind of a liberal arts dance curriculum and do well um in a dance program so it was it was well funded um but it was completely kind of she was so underappreciated i think she's now also a theater teacher there because she's also a professional actress and director um she's when i was a student she was just not f- kind of f- fully utilized and her skills just you know weren't made use of um i wonder i mean i i don't know this but i wonder uh, and and obviously they'll be different it'll be different uh in in various countries and probably various cities but i wonder if what in america is called specials if there is a um financial difference in terms of how much you get paid to teach the special yeah. subject versus the you know you can't see me do scare quotes but the proper academic subjects in scare quotes because if there is of course that's another way to uh to reinforce the kinds of inequalities that we're talking about 
Yeah, it certainly depends on where you go. So the, the U.S. is so decentralized and school is funded at the state level. And then it, depending on the state, there are districts. And in California, there are many, 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 many districts. And they're all funded by property taxes. And we'll talk about this more in our next episode where we talk about oh. schools. Um, but it's a really, it really depends where you are in the U.S., Whereas in Britain, there's a, the conversation seems to be a bit more centralized. Is that? I think so, and I think the the fact that there are national unions and you know there's a national pay scale, uh, both at school and university level, and there's a, a nationalized, centralized pension scheme, for example, uh, makes the conversation more unified. Yeah, can we talk a bit more about? Um about your sample because certainly the the population of your social media isn't isn't representative of the whole population so the kinds of people that that respond you know people so this is slightly difficult to do because um it's um how can i phrase it so i think it's it's easier to do this in facebook because obviously everyone who responded to me on facebook said um were, were people who I know, as it were, you know, our Facebook yeah. friends. Uh, and this is a, a, it's a fairly international group. There are people from America, mostly from Britain, I think. Uh, but there are people from America, there are people from Germany, uh, there are people from uh, Eastern Europe, there are people from Ireland. I'm just scrolling through, you know, picking up, picking up names and, and, uh, and and after sort of locating them as it were, uh, there, yeah. So it's a, it's a fairly um, fairly global group, but definitely uh, biased towards Britain. Uh, on Twitter, where we got sort of slightly more than half, there were seventy nine responses on Facebook, and you know, hundred something on Twitter. On Twitter, it's harder because a lot of people who responded are people I don't know and, and who I don't follow and don't follow me. Uh, but I think it is probably, at least in geographical terms, probably not that dissimilar. Mm-hmm. If I broke it down, my hunch would be mostly Britain, then America, uh, and then then Europe and, and beyond, as it were. Okay. So one thing with specials, arts classes, PE classes, music classes, religion. Yeah. What of what other themes? Um so one really interesting and given given the current debates within certainly within British higher education but but beyond was how many people either it was clear that they had assumed this or specifically asked me whether by black I meant people of color or whether I meant BAME, you know, black, Asian and minority ethnic. Um, I think it's, it's interesting that the number of people who, who, whose response consisted of a single digit, you know, one or two or three, that it wasn't always clear whether they are, they specifically, they, they realized that I specifically meant black so that 
109 uh responses might be actually higher than that because they they the number of people who said one some of them may well have meant a south asian educator or a or a latino educator or whatever uh where the question i'm i said black and i meant specifically black um so that was one thing that was really interesting the way that that came out sometimes people asked you know do you mean black or do you mean bme um and sometimes it was clear when people said you know i had only one teacher and that was a south asian teacher doing this that or the other whatever it was and and i could i could either point out or or at least reflect that in the in the way i calculated the data um the other really interesting um point was uh how a lot of people not everybody by any means certainly perhaps not even a majority uh but a lot of people uh commented when they said you know i had only one black teacher only one black guidance counselor only one black educator at whatever level then contextualize that comment by how influential that person was much in the way you just did with your black philosophy mm-hmm. professor who you said introduced you to feminist intersectionalist and feminist philosophy and it made me wonder a on the one hand how much we are all missing out because we aren't getting this diversity of educators but also it made me wonder how the the majority in any given situation in this case if we say you know white educators don't necessarily have the burden to have to be exceptional in every moment mm-hmm. right like they have the the you have the the freedom to be mediocre uh, you yeah. have the freedom to be unmemorable uh yeah. but if you are the only racialized minority person on in your workplace you never have the freedom to be unmemorable you never have the the luxury to be mediocre uh so that was one of the things that really stood out for me yeah um yeah it's interesting um because obviously i had quite a few south asian teachers um if you study south asian studies you'd hope that most of your professors are south asians um and it's a re- it's an interesting um question and one that i was thinking of at the same time you know how how many people around us i mean it, you know you think about when we go to work how few colleagues we have of color and how very few colleagues we have who are black scholars um and how few of our students are black students as well um and it gets you know it gets tossed around in conversations around diversity and we'll talk about um the movements going on in the UK to decolonize using this term decolonize the curriculum decolonize the university um and how just on at a at a very simple day to day um in terms of our interactions and the conversations we have with people how few of those conversations happen with black people um and how few opportunities our black students have um it's a really i think that we were we were talking about why we need to have this conversation um and it is decades overdue yeah and and again 
I guess the last the last point in the themes that came up, which is something that we'll be exploring across the, the these two episodes that we are recording, uh, is the the what's been described as the broken pipeline, right? The the a number of people said I had X number of black te- teachers at school, and then I went to university, and I didn't. There weren't any, uh, mm-hmm. uh, and so on. So uh, there is in the same way that there is a perceived and often material hierarchy between academic subjects and quasi-academic subjects, there is also a perceived and material hierarchy between teachers at school and teachers at university. We get paid much more to do our jobs than, than teachers at school get paid to do theirs. Uh, so the, the, the way the broken pipeline creates and, and, Con- exacerbates inequality actually makes material difference in in terms of the apart from anything else in terms of the sort of earning potential of particular communities at the expense of others yes yes um you mentioned decolonizing the university um i'm sure most of our listeners will know what you're talking about but do you want to give a, a bit of a history and a bit of a context here Yes. So um, we've we've talked a little bit about roads must fall before, I think, when we've talked about universities in the past. Um, there has been in the last 10 years a very, I would say, high profile, and it, it kind of comes in, in waves in terms of when it appears in the media and when it kind of takes on mainstream significance, but it is a constant um, a constant debate and for activists continues day to day. Um, it's, and it's, it's all around, it's basically, it's about how the universities in the UK and around the world are colonial institutions. A lot of the institutions that we work at and have been educated at, and that are also, you know, central in terms of producing the research that goes into creating policy are at their heart colonial institutions. Um, It's taken shape around the Rhodes Must Fall campaign. Um, So just a reminder, there's a statue of Cecil Rhodes, um, a very infamous um, colonialist um, and a really horrific man. He was absolutely horrific and his legacy is one of violence and exploitation an absolute destruction, environmental destruction, um, and resource extraction in Africa. He named two countries after himself, and that was the least of his colonial crimes. Um, There's a massive statue of him at Oriel College in Oxford. There are other statues of him around the world. Um, And it's not just a statue, one of the most prestigious scholars, I think probably the most prestigious scholarship program, um, which brings scholars to Oxford is called the Rhodes Scholarship. Um, Pete Buttigieg, very famously, was a Rhodes Scholar, um, as was Bill Clinton. Um, so th- it it kind of re- has reached a zenith around the statue of, of Rhodes um, in Oxford. And around that discussion or debate, um, there's been a more diffuse discussion around decolonizing the curriculum, which is basically about identifying the ways in which universities are built on and structured around colonial forms of 
social relations and colonial forms of knowledge production, um, which is a kind of fancy dancy way of saying a lot of our reading lists are basically glorified colonial reading lists. Um, a lot of the philosophy that we get taught, a lot of the thing, the history that we get taught, a lot of the history that we continue to teach um, is a very particular history. It's a colonial history. Um, and it's done with quite a bit of colonial money, uh, money that was produced, cap- capital that was produced for universities um, through colonial economy. So the slave trade, for example, um, but also other very exploitative colonial economies. So the, and that is a diffuse movement that kind of takes place at the campus level, but also at smaller levels. So certain schools or departments or teaching programs will have a kind of decolonizing undercurrent. There's a decolonizing the buildings program happening in our teaching program right now. And then that has made its way into our school in the at the University of Edinburgh that is specifically around looking at the way our, our buildings um, create memorials and um, create certain narratives around the history of the geosciences and the earth sciences. So our buildings, for example, are named after uh, white rock men, Hutton, um, for example, a, a famous geolo- 19th century geologist. Um, and Dar- we have a Darwin room, for example. Um, you know, Darwin, of course, gave us some very important bits of science, but he also gave us, you know, scientific racism. So, you know, swings and roundabouts. So there's a kind of, there's a, a, a grassroots practice around decolonizing, but there's also a, a higher level debate around how universities should go about reimagining their curriculum and reimagining their hiring practices and reimagining their student admissions practices and reimagining. I mean, and once you get into the nitty gritty of it, exactly at what point you should intervene becomes a really difficult question. Um, why is why should there be statues of imperial robber barons in our universities? What, I mean, what is the what does that say about the history of of the university? Does so? I mean, and this is where my kind of lack of interest in the origins of Rhodes and my desire to just like not have him there kind of I think um, adds perhaps to a little bit of my ignorance. I'm not sure why he was put there in the first place, but presumably the Rhodes Scholarship was funded through his his money. So it's it's a it's a monument to the gift, the financial gift. And and I and guess it, I guess part of what I was getting at was the fact that our especially our older quote unquote more elite universities. Uh, across the world, really, this is not not specifically a British issue. Uh, these institutions are so complicit in historical processes such as colonialism and slavery, and have benefited materially so much from these processes of colonialism and slavery. What does that say about the kind of an of an institution that we are currently trying to reform? Through decolonizing, yeah. um, because I think 
certainly the 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 liberal white position i think misunderstands the the sort of fundamental challenge that decolonizing should imply which is that this is not the the, the university is not a space where the where the traces of colonialism and slavery are accidental or coincidental mm-hmm. it is not it the racism is not a byproduct coming out of universities that race that universities are fundamentally built on forces of racism and imperialism and slavery and were built in order to propagate those those institutions right the, yeah. the job of the university was and has always been to secure white supremacy right yes and until recently it was deemed to be most useful to exclude everyone except a very particular class of white men from the universities and i mean we try you know the the darwin room is named the darwin room he worked at a university you know the scientific research gets done i mean less so now because and we'll talk about this the government has hollowed out universities as research centers that now really happens in industry but in the 19th century in the 18th century in the 17th century and the 16th century and if you're St Andrews you know the second century the, the research that gets done is reflective of and also shapes the social and political relations of the time i mean they're not just built on the capital of that you know was generated by the empire and that was generated by the violence and exploitation of people around the world they also shaped the racial ideologies and the economic uh the economic philosophies and the political philosophy of how do you how do you govern how do you understand how do you measure how do you think of the religious practices how do you incorporate a a native population into your your new weird political unit how do you extract resources using the best technology how do you create a racial hierarchy in order to get your european white population to buy into um the enslavement of huge numbers of people like it universities invented all of it <laughs> so what do we do <laughs> No, I mean it's a serious question, right? Because we are both members of and presumably to some extent invested in these institutions. Uh we neither of us believe particularly in I don't think in the possibility of starting up a new kind of university system from scratch. We have to work with this these institutions uh you know corporate institutions which which they are which is what they are now mm-hmm. so how what what does this historic reality compared combined with this current what seems to us clear examples of inequalities in terms of who is allowed access and who isn't what does this situation demand of us now us being students scholars academics who want to want the university to to be a better place. Yeah. Well, back in the 60s and the 70s, 
Um, there was a movement, certainly in the United States, and I don't know as much about this here in the UK, um, but in the US, affirmative action laws were passed. Um, and I remember, and there's so, affirmative action is so kind of, it's so emotional for white people. <laughs> They're really, really obsessed with it. Um, and in the 60s and 70s, and it, it really was the, the kind of 1970s where affirmative action laws were um, pretty common, like relatively common. And I remember hearing Melissa Harris Perry once talk about, um, I think it was in her discussion at the New School with Bell Hooks, she was talking about affirmative action um, and how she was just the right age to benefit from affirmative action laws. Um, and that the quotas were fundamental to creating access. Um, and affirmative action was not legal. It, it wasn't a legal requirement of uni private universities, which in the U.S., of course, the elitist institutions are the private ones um, in, you know, on the East Coast. But public institutions had to abide by affirmative action laws. So the California, the California State University System the New York University state system. I mean, they're, re and, you know, Illinois, these massive, you know, research heavy institutions suddenly had to admit more black students. And it was like, I mean, white people went crazy, but that's sort of secondary. In terms of a kind of first step, it's revolutionary. But it lasted for a couple of years before the massive challenges to affirmative action came into place. It also didn't have any real effect on wider structural inequalities. It provided opportunities for more numbers of individuals and provided opportunities for more families. But in terms of community and intervening at the community level, intervening at the city level, intervening at any sort of class level, it did nothing for entire black communities. And it's a real, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm pro affirmative action, um, specifically affirmative action that works on behalf of black people, but it's not enough. So the kind of the first answer and the activists of the seventies would say, well, first we need affirmative action. Um, but we know that it hasn't been enough. Yeah, I mean, Britain didn't have affirmative action of that kind, but uh, 60s and 70s, uh, less so 60s, I think more 70s and and sort of the first half of the 80s were the time, the high watermark in Britain as well of universities acting as agents of social mobility, which you know, was better than we have now with £9,000 tuition fees in England. Uh, at the time, there were no tuition fees. You got student grants. So there was a reasonable chance of you being able to get to university, even if you were poor. Uh, but of course, as as you were alluding to in your, uh, your outline of affirmative action, in one sense, what it does is it replaces a kind of financial elite with a kind of intellectual elite, right? So you, you are... In one model, the rich stay richer and get to be richer and the poor are excluded. In another model, the people who are conventionally deemed to be 
better and more more meritorious get get allowed entry and and the rest remain remain cut off uh so it's you know it's progress but it's certainly not inclusive in the fullest sense of the word yeah in terms of justice yeah and i guess that's a question i mean it's it's one of the assumptions of, about universities more generally what is what is the role of an intellectual elite um and I mean, to go back to our, our founding principle of critical theory, Gramsci, I think, is quite a useful um, early Marxist. Um, he, he talks about the elite and he talks about um, the role of the intellectual. Um, and one of the things he's quite damning about it, really, that his because of his point from what I remember, I haven't read Gramsci in a while, but his point is that um, the intellectual elite that comes from a kind of lineage of intellectual elite is more a tool of the status quo than anything else. And any sort of attempts that that class of intellectual elite make in terms of structural change will be superficial at best. And often those individuals work towards upholding the status quo and the only intellectual elite or the only intellectuals that can actually make substantive changes are those that come from below from the what he's thinking in terms of the proletariat and crossing that boundary is the only way that the elite can or the intellectuals can make any sort of difference in structural terms which is which is why we would want universities to to be geared towards creating what Gramsci refers to as the organic intellectual, right? The intellectual who comes up from below. Uh, that's what we would ideally like. The question is, is there any way to reform the institutions that have been handed down to us so we get to a point where they are able to do that? Or are the, inst- the institutions that have been handed down to us not fit for purpose? And... To what extent are we able to reform an institution to go against what it was originally designed to do? Well, yeah, I mean, would the institution, and even thinking of the institution as as housing an intellectual elite, even exist if the organic intellectual becomes the norm? Yeah. Yeah. Would it even continue to be an institution that is recognizable to us as the as a university, or would it be something fundamentally different? Well, we've seen a, a, a glimpse of how the institution fights back uh, when it is forced to be a little bit more inclusive, right? And mm-hmm. you mentioned this in passing earlier when you said when you were talking about sort of government control of uh, and and hollowing out of the of the university as a place of research. Do you want to say a bit more about how we see that as? Uh, uh, as a reaction against the kind of uh, upward social mobility that the universities were were engaged in in the in the seventies and eighties, yeah, well, the seventies and eighties, right? So, um, certainly in the U.S., also in Britain, um, start allowing a more diverse group of students in and supporting them through, um, certainly financially. I think the uh, the assumption that underpins that is that there's a meritocracy at work 
there's some sort of meritocracy at work so that you, everyone kind of earns their spot, but that it's a little bit more equitable in terms of, of how people are assessed and how people are led into the institutions. Um, those first students in the 70s are now, if they've decided to stay in academia, are now quite old. Um, they became academics in the late 80s, early 90s. So really the people that taught me, and I assume also the people that taught you. Um, and their research is really being published in the 90s. Um, and, and in the early 2000s, they are of that generation. What happens in the 90s in the UK? The first version of REF. It's called back then it was called the research assessment exercise, the RAE, probably had an iteration before that. What we know of it now is the REF, the research excellence framework. And this is a really massive auditing exercise. Um, academics have talked about the rise in auditing of universities that comes about in the 90s. And I don't think it's an accident. Like, I don't think it's a conspiracy. Like, I don't think it's a bunch of white dudes in a room being like, oh my gosh, all of these. Uh, women of color in universities are 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 undermining what we think of as proper research. I don't think it's that, but I don't think it's an accident that there's a belief that women, that black women, that men of color, that openly gay, out of the closet gay scholars all need to be watched more closely. They need to be audited because they can't be trusted to do anything in the ivory tower. They sit in the ivory tower. They're not going to produce any research. They're not going to do any teaching. They're uh, they're not going to be producing work that is recognizable as being of quality by international audiences. You know, there's a need to watch more closely. I don't think it's an accident. So, so it's it's when the ivory tower gets invaded by, you know, people who don't belong, people like us. Uh, yeah. that that the the institution and the state that underpins the institution behind it together institute uh, this kind of uh, auditing, tick boxing, quantifying exercise, which then gets connected onto uh, a slightly separate but connected set of forces that turn the university into even more a neoliberal corporate institution that is about profit and thinks of thinks of students as consumers and you know all all of that the the commodification of education the commodification of research which has always happened but there was a marked acceleration through the through the new millennium uh the 90s into the new millennium uh all of that is presumably connected to 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 this to this sense of the university needing to to give an account of itself if it is daring to include people who aren't old white men. In a sense, yeah. And I think it's obviously white supremacy does a really good job of hiding itself. Um, so so it's it's all hidden behind language of value for money, um uh, career prospects after graduation, you know, all these things that are seemingly in support of students who can't necessarily call upon family money for two or three years after graduation, but is in a sense a cover for raising tuition fees, for hollowing out research funding, 
Um, you know, one of the interesting things, and this is a digression, but one of the interesting things that that a number of historians have said around the uh, removal of Edward Colston's statue in Bristol is um, that all of a sudden government ministers are talking about wanting to preserve history, but that has not been the priority of government over the last 10 years. The AHRC, the Arts and Humanities Research Council, which is the primary public funder of historical research in the UK, has been absolutely decimated. The austerity agenda in the first five years of this government really hollowed out research funding. Um, The reorganization of the research councils has meant that the AHRC has had even less money in recent years. Um, One of George Osborne's budgets, I think it was the 2015 budget, 2016 budget, um, they cut BIS, which is the the government department in the UK that oversees research funding and other innovation funding, cut it by 40%. If the government cared about history, they would fund historians, but they don't. There's a massive crisis in history. All of my academic Twitter this year has been historians with PhDs out of work because history departments have been absolutely destroyed. So the the kind of neoliberalizing and auditing, I think, has come hand in hand with scholars of color entering arts and humanities research programs. Yeah. So that's my rant. (laughs) Um, that's probably not a bad point to stop. Um, we, as we said, this is part one of a two-parter. And in the second part, we'll focus more clearly on schools as opposed to universities uh, and think about how school, segregation of schools and uh, and regulation of school systems uh, enable, enable a kind of racial and, and economic segregation. Uh, so, so listen out for that next time. Uh, I hope our new sound recording system has has been doing its job, and and that that you can hear and understand Hannah. Um, <laughs> and I, if you have any questions, drop us a line. Uh, let us know what you think. Uh, rate and review us on on iTunes and wherever you wherever you uh, pick us up. Uh, Stay safe, everybody. The world is still a very scary place. Stay indoors where you have to. Look after yourselves. And we will catch you next week. Bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode. I have been Hannah Fitzpatrick. And I have been Anindya Rechaudhry. You can contact me on Twitter at Dr. H. Fitz. And me at Dr. Anindya R. Our show is on Facebook at State of the Theory Podcast and on Twitter at Theory Doctors. Our music is provided by the Agrarians and this has been State of the Theory. Thank you. Where would we be? Where would we be?